major combatants who fought in the Solomon Islands initially planned to fight there. Japan's purpose in World War II was to create a vast sphere of economic dominance across China and Southeast Asia. In the Pacific, only one country realistically stood in its way, and that was the United States of America. In 1941, the Japanese government toted up the strength of their naval and ground forces, compared it to what the Americans had in the Pacific, and determined that if they were ever going to attain their dream of dominating the region, now was the time to accomplish a quick knockout of the opposition. The surprise attacks on the United States in Hawaii and the Philippine Islands in December of that year were the result of this calculation, or it might better be called a miscalculation, followed by a surge of Japanese forces across Southeast Asia and then south to New Guinea, Rabul, and Bougainville. Almost without a thought, they continued to plunge toward Australia, although it was never clear what they would do when they got there. That was when the Solomon Islands entered Japanese military planning, especially one large island that offered a suitable area for an airstrip from which their bombers could interdict the sea lanes leading to Australia and New Zealand. That island's name was Guadalcanal. In June 1942, a little more than a thousand Japanese engineers and Korean laborers were put ashore on Guadalcanal to build an airstrip. A few hundred miles to the south, American forces had established themselves practically overnight in the island group known as the New Hebrides, with the idea of slowly building up a force that could defend Australia and New Zealand, and then perhaps move cautiously north. When reports came in about the construction of a Japanese airstrip on Guadalcanal, Admiral of the Fleet Ernest J. King decided to put a stop to it. Although most of the American civilian and military leaders in Washington, D.C., including President Franklin D. Roosevelt, were determined to concentrate on the war in Europe, Admiral King, famously prickly and tough, it was said he shaved with a blowtorch, insisted on forcing the issue against the Japanese in a place where his Navy and Marine Corps could reach them. Reluctantly, Roosevelt gave King permission to proceed. In August, the United States Marines arrived in the Southern Solomons for what they hoped would be an easy fight against the few Japanese troops guarding the still unfinished airfield on Guadalcanal. At first, it was a pushover. The Americans came ashore all but unopposed, piling up their goods on the beaches and securing the airfield. The Japanese engineers and the Koreans ran back into the hills. That might have been the end of it, except the Japanese military, drunk on victory, refused to give up territory to the enemy. Even if it was on an island, they didn't much need or want. More than anything, they desired to teach the Americans a lesson. Japanese troops, supported by the Imperial Navy, were ordered to retake Guadalcanal. Thus, with neither side in the contest understanding the intentions or the determination of the other, a brutal seven-month campaign began with the cream of the Japanese military hurled against a rapidly assembled American counterforce of Marines, Army regulars, and National Guard troops, and what battleships, destroyers, cruisers, PT boats, landing craft, and freighters could be scraped together. The battle for Guadalcanal turned into a bloody slugging match between nearly equal forces. In the end, the Japanese would be utterly defeated and killed nearly to the last man. It is not hyperbole to write that the Japanese were astonished at this result. There were many recriminations in Tokyo. What had the Army and Navy done wrong?
who was to blame? Certainly it was not possible that the American fighting men might be the equal of the superior Japanese warrior. A few Japanese politicians, unaffected by the samurai code of Bushido, knew after Guadalcanal that the war was essentially lost, especially considering the battering the Imperial fleet had suffered at the Battle of Midway. What Japan had in its inventory was about all it would have to fight the entire war. The Americans, on the other hand, had very quickly implemented a massive and efficient retooling of their entire economy to produce the implements of war. Millions of fresh, well-trained troops were in the pipeline, along with massive cargoes of weapons, big and small. Even with the evidence of ultimate defeat provided by Guadalcanal and the Great Sea Battles, the Japanese refused to face the reality of the situation. Instead, they fashioned another strategy. They would go on the defensive and stop the Americans by demonstrating courage and brutality on a scale they believed Western culture could not imagine nor sustain. They reinforced their positions on the central and northern Solomon Islands, told their men to die bravely and to take as many Americans with them as possible, and waited. They would not have to wait very long. Vice Admiral William Halsey, commander of the American forces in the area, had discerned the enemy's mind and had instituted a straightforward but terrible response, best illustrated by a big billboard he had planted on a hillside in Tulagi, the capital of the Solomons, where every American naval vessel and the troops they carried could see it. It said very simply, Admiral Halsey says kill Japs, kill Japs, kill more Japs. Just a little more history from the author. One of the more famous and misunderstood episodes in the battle for the Solomon Islands between the United States and Japan occurred a little past midnight on August 2, 1943, when a PT boat, skippered by United States Naval Lieutenant J.G. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the future President of the United States, was rammed by a Japanese destroyer in the Blackett Strait off the island of New Georgia. After clinging to the wreckage of his shattered boat overnight, Kennedy, at the time an emaciated youth with a bad back, malfunctioning bowels, and probably a touch of malaria, ordered his crew to swim to an island four miles away, only to discover it was but a spit of sand with neither food nor water save a few coconuts. Aware that the Japanese tended to murder their prisoners by beheading or evisceration, Kennedy and his crew spent the rest of the day hiding behind the bushes that lined the beach and being pelted by bird excrement. While crouched in the stinking bushes, Kennedy, the second son of Joseph P. Kennedy, the former ambassador to Great Britain, surely must have reviewed in his mind what had led to his present situation. The mission that had sent him out the night before had been the result of a sudden brainstorm by the commander of Kennedy's squadron. Without rehearsal, fifteen boats had sallied forth to form a picket line across the strait between Rendova and New Georgia. Their purpose was to interdict the fast Japanese destroyers, nicknamed the Tokyo Express, that sped down from the north each night. Strict radio silence was kept, which meant no boat commander knew what the other one was doing. Only a few of the boats had radar, and Kennedy's boat wasn't one of them. When Kennedy saw flashes of light in the darkness... He assumed the action was on. He tried to get into the fight, but couldn't find it. 
He was attempting to get his bearings when something massive struck his boat, like a gigantic seagoing meat cleaver tearing it to pieces and instantly killing two of his men. It was a destroyer of the Tokyo Express. All the next day, Kennedy and his crew hid in the bushes. One of the crew, the mechanic, was horribly burned. All were hungry and thirsty. As darkness fell, Kennedy was apparently seized by a sudden energy. He announced he was going to swim into the shark-infested waters to signal the PT boats he was certain were searching for them. Nothing anyone could say could keep him from following through on his plan. Carrying a salvaged flashlight, he plunged into the sea. All night, Kennedy swam, fighting a vicious current and reportedly being visited by hallucinations. The next morning, completely spent and bleeding from numerous coral scratches, he staggered ashore to report failure. After resting a few hours but not sleeping, Kennedy once more displayed a tremendous new reserve of energy. He convinced his reluctant crew to swim to another island several miles away. After an arduous swim, their new island proved to have neither food nor water, except for a few more coconuts. Another miserable night and day passed, during which it was reported Kennedy slept very little. Expecting rescue, he kept looking out to sea. When no ships appeared, he began to suspect the truth and bitterly remarked on it to his crew. They had been abandoned. The next morning, a terribly thirsty, hungry, and sleep-deprived Kennedy tried to convince his men to swim to yet another island. They refused. Finally, a fellow officer, along on the mission for a joyride that had turned into a hellish nightmare, agreed to go.